Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 19. So, uh, the Historic Preservationist Architectural Preservation continues. I'm talking tonight about restoring and repairing historic flat plaster walls and ceilings. No ornamentation here with the flat plaster walls and ceilings. Okay. So plaster in a historic building is like a family album. The handwriting of the artisans, the taste of the original occupants, and the evolving styles of decoration are embodied in the fabric of the building. From modest farmhouses to great buildings, regardless of the ethnic origins of the occupants, plaster has traditionally been used to finish interior walls for centuries. A versatile material, plaster could be applied over brick, stone, half-timber, or frame construction. It provided a durable surface that was easy to clean and that could be applied to flat or curved walls and or ceilings. Plaster could be treated in any number of ways. It could receive stenciling, decorative painting, wallpaper, and whitewash, even whitewash colored. This variety and the adaptability of the material to nearly any building size, shape, or configuration meant that plaster was the wall surface chosen for nearly all buildings up until the 1930s or 40s. Historic plaster may first appear to be fraught with many problems, and it does have its problems. That's its total removal seems only the alternative. But there are practical and historical reasons for saving it. First, three-coat plaster is unmatched in strength and audio sensibility. It resists fire and reduces sounds transmission. Next, replacing plaster is expensive. A building owner needs to think carefully about the condition of the plaster that remains. Plaster is often not as badly damaged as it first appears. A more common concern to preservationists, however, original lime and gypsum plaster is part of the building's historic fabric. Its smooth trout or textured surface and subtle contours evoke the presence of America's earlier craftsmen. Plaster can also serve as a plain surface for irreplaceable decorative finishes. For both reasons, plaster walls and ceilings contribute to the historic character of the interior and should be left in place and repaired if at all possible. And I think one exception here, even if, um, say, a ceiling is not in really, really bad shape, um, we can notice as a historic preservationist moving through the building, if you're finding excessive flex in the floor, in the floor joist, say you're on the second floor, and you need to get in and see what the, the uh, the joists are looking like. Uh, a lot of times they've been drilled out for wires and holes or woodworm. And woodworm in particular, some of these floor joists spanning 12, 15, 18 feet have excessive woodworm. There's going to be a lot of bounce and in a very dangerous situation. So sometimes that plaster ceiling may have to come down to have, uh, you know, some engineered material sister to it. The approach is described in this brief, stress repairs using wet plaster, and traditional materials and techniques 
that will best assist the preservation of historic plaster walls and ceilings and their appearance. Drywall repairs are not included here, but have been written about extensively in other contexts and can be found quite easily. Finally, this brief describes a replacement option when historic plaster cannot be repaired. Thus, a veneer plaster system is discussed rather than drywall. Veneer systems include a coat or coats of wet plaster, although thinly applied, which can, to a great extent, simulate traditional hand troweled or textured finished coats. This system is generally better suited to historic preservation projects than drywall is. So to repair plaster, a building owner must often enlist the help of a plaster, a professional. Plastering is a highly skilled craft requiring many years of training and special tools. While minor repairs can be undertaken by building owners, most repairs will require the assistance of a plaster. So a little bit of a historic background on, the, on, on plasters. So plasters in North America have relied on two materials to create their handiwork, lime and gypsum. Until the end of the 19th century, plasters used lime plaster. Lime plaster was made from four ingredients, lime, aggregate, fiber, and water. The lime came from ground and heated limestone or oyster shells, the aggregate from sand, and the fiber from cattle or hog, and this was primarily their hair. Manufacturing changes at the end of the 19th century made it possible to use gypsum as a plastering material. Gypsum and lime plaster were used in combination for a base and finished coats during the early part of the 20th century. Gypsum was eventually for part of the <clears throat> favored much before it set much more rapidly and initially had a much harder finish. Not only did the basic plastering material change, but the method of application changed also. In early America, the windows, doors, and all of the trim were installed before the plaster was applied to the wall. Generally, the woodwork was prime painted before plastering, obtaining a plumb level wall while working up against build-up moldings. Must have been quite difficult. But sometime in that first half of the 19th century, builders began installing wood or plaster, <coughs> wooden plaster grounds around windows and doors and at the base of the wall. Installing these grounds so that they were level and plumb made the job much easier because the plaster could work from a level, plumb, straight surface. Woodwork was then nailed to the grounds after the walls were plastered. Evidence of plaster behind trim is often an aid to dating historic houses or to discerning their physical evolution. So we're going to start by talking about lime plaster, the oldest type plaster used. When building a house, plaster is traditionally mixed bags of quick lime with water to hydrate or slake the lime. As the, as the lime absorbed the water, heat was driven off. When the heat diminished and the lime and water were thoroughly mixed, lime putty that resulted was used to make plaster. When lime putty, sand, water, and animal hair were mixed, the mixture provided the plaster with coarse stuff. The mixture was applied in one or two layers to build up the wall thickness. 
but the best plaster was done with three coats. The first two coats made up the coarse stuff, while the scratch coat and the brown coat. The finished plaster called setting stuff contained a much higher proportion of lime putty, very little aggregate, and no fiber, and gave the wall smooth, white, hard, durable finish. Compared to the 3 8 thick inch layers of the scratch and brown coats, the finished coat was a mere eighth inch thick. Additives were used for various finished qualities that were sought after. And the fine white sand was mixed in for a float mesh. This finish was popular in the early 1900s. So the plaster raked the sand with a broom. The plaster wall would retain swirl marks or stipples. Or marble dust was added to create a hard finish, white coat, which could be smoothed and polished with a steel trowel. Finally, a little plaster of Paris or gauge stuff was often added to the finished plaster to accelerate the setting time. Although lime plaster was used in this country, the U.S., until the early 1900s, it had certain disadvantages. A plastered wall could take more than a year to dry. This delayed painting or papering to a large extent. In addition, bagged quick lime had to be carefully protected from contact with air, or it became inert because it reacted with ambient moisture and carbon dioxide. So around 1900, gypsum began to be used as a plastering material. So let's talk about gypsum plaster. Gypsum begins to cure as soon as it is mixed with water. It sets in minutes and completely dries in two to three weeks. Historically, gypsum made a more rigid plaster and did not require a fibrous binder. However, it is difficult to tell the difference between lime and gypsum plaster once the plaster is cured. Despite these desirable working characteristics, gypsum plaster was more vulnerable to water damage than lime. Lime plasters had often been applied directly to masonry walls without lathing, forming a suction-type bond. They could survive occasional wind-driven moisture and water wicking up from the ground. Gypsum plaster needed protection from water. Furring strips had to be used against masonry walls to create a dead airspace. This prevented moisture transfer. In rehabilitation and restoration projects, one should rely on the plaster's judgment about whether to use lime or gypsum plaster. In general, gypsum plaster is the material plasters used today. Different types of aggregate may be specified by the architect, such as clean river sand, perlite, pumice, or vermiculite. However, if historic finishes and textures are being replicated, sand should be used as the base coat aggregate. Today, if fiber is required in a base coat, a special gypsum is available which includes wood fibers, lime putty, mixed with about 35% gypsum, which is gauging plaster, to help it harden. And it's, it is still used as a finished coat. The lath. Lath provided a means of holding the plaster in place. Wooden lath was nailed at right angles directly to the structural members of the buildings, the joists and the studs, or it was fashioned to non-structural space strips known as furring strips. 
These types of lath can be found on historic buildings. Wood lath so is usually made up of narrow, thin strips of wood with spaces in between. The plaster applies a slight pressure to push the wet plaster through the spaces. The plaster tends, when it gets to the other side between the spaces, tends to slump down on the inside of the wall, forming plaster keys. These keys hold the plaster in place. So on a more contemporary note, we're going to talk now about metal lath. Metal lath, patented in England in 1797, began to be used in parts of the United States toward the end of the 19th century. So look at that lag time. The steel making up the metal lath can contain many more spaces than wood lath had contained. These spaces increased the number of keys. Metal lath was better able to hold plaster than wood lath had ever been. Let's talk about rock lath. A third lath system commonly used was rock lath, also called plasterboard or gypsum board, in use as early as 1900. Rock lath was made up of compressed gypsum covered by a paper facing. Some rock lath was textured or perforated to provide a key for wet plaster. A special paper with gypsum crystals in it provided a key for rock lath used today. When wet plaster is applied to the surface, a crystalline bond is achieved. Rock lath was the most economical of the three lathing systems. Lathers or carpenters could prepare a room more quickly. By the late 1930s, Rock lath was used almost exclusively in residential plastering. So we're going to talk about common plaster problems. When plaster dries, it is a relatively rigid material, which will last almost indefinitely. However, there are conditions that cause plaster to crack, effervescence, separate, or become detached from its lath framework. And these include structural problems, with the lath and or the walls or the building, poor workmanship, improper curing, and moisture. So let's go through each of these. Structural problems, overloading, stresses within a wall or acting on the house as a whole can create stress cracks. Appearing as diagonal lines in a wall, stress cracks usually start at a door or window, frame, but they can appear anywhere in the wall with seemingly random starting points. There usually is a rhyme and reason, though. Builders of now historic houses had no codes to help them size the structural members of buildings. The weight of the roof, the second and third stories, the furniture, and the occupants could impose a heavy burden on beams, joists, or studs, or even today, much vibration with uh, road noise and traffic. Even when houses were built properly, later remodeling efforts may have <coughs> cut in a doorway or window without adding a structural beam or header across the top of the opening. Occasionally, load-bearing members were simply too small to carry loads above them. Deflection or wood creep, which is deflection that occurs over time, can create cracks in plaster. Overloading and structural movement, especially when combined with rotting lath, rusted nails, or poor quality plaster can cause plaster to detach from the lath. The lath loses its key. When the mechanical bond of the lath is broken, plaster becomes loose or bowed. If repairs are not made, especially to ceilings, 
gravity will supply, cause chunks of plaster will fall to the floor. So settlement and vibration. Cracks in walls can also result when a house settles. Houses built on clay soils are especially vulnerable. Many types of clay, such as Mont Morelite, are highly expansive. In the dry season, water evaporates from the clay particles, causing them to contract. During the rainy season, the clay swells, thus a building can be riding on an unstable footing. Diagonal cracks running in opposite directions suggest that a house settling and the soil conditions may be at fault. Similar systems occur when there is a nearby source of vibration, blasting, a train line, a busy highway, or repeated sonic booms. Lath movement. Horizontal cracks are often caused by lath movement because it absorbs moisture from the air. Wood lath expands and contracts as humidity rises and falls. This can cause cracks to appear year after year. Cracks can also appear between rock lath panels. A nail holding the edge of a piece of lath may rust or loosen or structural movement in the wood framing behind the lath may cause it a seam to open up. Heavy loads in a storage area above a rock lath ceiling can also cause ceiling cracks. Errors in initial building construction, such as improper bracing, poor corner construction, faulty framing or doors or windows, and undersized beams and floor joists eventually telegraph through the plaster surface. Poor workmanship. In addition to problems caused by movement or weakness in the structural framework, plaster door building can be affected by poor materials and workmanship. Poorly proportioned mix. The improper proportioning and mixing materials are vital to the quality of a plaster job. A bad mix can cause problems that appear years later in a plastered wall. Until recently, Proportions of aggregate and lime were mixed on the job. A plaster may have skimped on the amount of cementing material, lime or gypsum, because sand sand was the cheaper material. Oversanding can cause the plaster to weaken or crumble. Plaster made from a poorly proportioned mix may be difficult to repair. And just remember, just mixing this together was a chore, was one hell of a chore. Today, we have all kind of power mixers. Incompatible base coats and finish coats. Use of perlite as an aggregate also presented problems. Perlite is a lightweight aggregate used in the base coat instead of sand. It performs well in cold weather and has a slightly better insulating value. But if a smooth lime finish was applied over perlited base coats on wood or rock lath, Cracks could appear in the finished coat, and the entire job could have to be a doer or a redone. To prevent this, a plaster had to add fine silica sand or finely crushed perlite to the finished coat to compensate for the dramatically different shrinkage rates between the base coat and the finished coat. Improper plaster application. The finished coat is subject to chip cracking. If it was applied over an excessively dry base coat, or was insufficiently troweled, or too little gauging plaster was used, chip cracking looks very much like an alligator paint surface.
Another common problem is called map cracking. Fine, irregular cracks that occur when the finished coat has been applied to an over-sanded base coat or a very thin base coat. Too much retardant. Retardant agents are added to slow down the rate to which plaster sets and thus inhibit hardening. They have traditionally included ammonia, glue, gelatin, starch, molasses, or vegetable oil. If the plaster has used too much retardant, however, a gypsum plaster will not set within a normal 20 to 30 minute time period. As a result, the surface can become soft and powdery. Adequate plaster thickness. Plaster is applied in three coats over wood lath and metal lath, the scratch, brown, and finish coats. In three coat work, the scratch coat and brown coat were sometimes applied on successive days to make up for the required wall thickness. Using rock lath allowed the plaster to apply one base coat and the finish coat a two coat job. If a plaster is skimped on materials, the walnut may not have sufficient plaster thickness to withstand the normal stresses within a building. The minimum total thickness for plaster on gypsum board or rock lath is one half inch. On metal lath, the minimum thickness is five eighths of an inch. And for wood lath, about three quarter to seven eighths of an inch thick. This minimum plaster thickness may affect the thickness of trim projecting from the wall's plane. Improper, improper curing. Improper temperature and air circulation during curing are key factors in a durable plaster job. The ideal temperature for plaster to cure is between 55 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. However, historic houses were sometimes plastered before window sashes were put in. There was no way to control temperature and humidity. Let's talk about dry outs, freezing, and sweat outs. When temperatures were too hot, the plaster would return to its original condition before it was mixed with water. That is, calcined gypsum. A plaster would have to spray the wall with alm water to reset the plaster. If freezing occurred before the plaster had set, the job would simply have to be redone. If the windows were shut so the air could not circulate, the plaster was subject to sweat out or rot, since there is no cure for rotted plaster. The affected area had to be removed and replastered. Moisture. Plaster applied to a masonry wall is quite vulnerable to water damage if the wall is constantly wet. When salts from the masonry substrate come in contact with the water, they migrate to the surface of the plaster, appearing as dry bubbles or effervescence. The source of the moisture must be eliminated before replastering or damp or the area the damaged area must be redone. Sources of water damage. Moisture problems occur for several reasons. Interior plumbing leaks in older houses are common. Roofs may leak, causing ceiling damage. Gutters and downspouts may also leak. Pouring rain, water next to the building foundation. In brick buildings, dampness at the foundation level can wick up to the above grade walls. Another common source, source of moisture is splashback. When there is a source of moisture, 
and over a paved area to the masonry building. Rain water splashes up from the paving and can dampen masonry walls. In both cases, water travels through the masonry and damage interior plaster. Coatings applied to the interior are not effective over the long run. The moisture problem must be stopped on the outside of the wall. Repairing historic plaster. Many of the problems that I've described may not be easy to remedy. They're not. If major structural problems are found to be the source of the plaster problem, the structural problem should be corrected first. Some repairs can be made by removing only small sections of plaster to gain access. Minor structural problems that will not endanger the building can generally be ignored. Cosmetic damages from minor building movement, holes, or bowed areas can be repaired without the need for wholesale demolition. However, it may be necessary to remove deteriorated plaster caused by rising damp in order for masonry walls to dry out. Repairs made to a wet base will fall once again. Canvassing uneven wall surfaces. Uneven wall surfaces caused by previous patching or partial wallpaper removal, removal are common in old houses. As long as the plaster is generally sound, cosmetically unattractive plaster walls can be wallpapered with strips of a canvas or fabric-like material. Historically, canvassing covered imperfections in the plaster and provided a stable base for decorative painting or wallpapering. So let's talk about filling cracks. Hairline cracks in wall and ceiling plaster are not a serious cause for concern, as long as the underlying plaster is in good condition. They may be filled easily with a patching material. For cracks that reopen with seasonal humidity change, a slightly different method would be used. First, the crack is widened slightly with a sharp pointed tool, such as a crack widener or a triangular can opener. Then the crack is filled for more <coughs> then the crack is filled. For more persistent cracks, it may be necessary to bridge the crack with tape. In this instance, a fiberglass mesh tape is pressed into the patching material after the first application of the quick setting joint pound dries. A second coat is used to cover the tape, feathering it in at the edges. A third coat is applied to even out the surface, followed by a light sanding. The area is cleaned off with a damp sponge, then dried to remove any leftover plaster residue or dust. When cracks are larger and due to structural movement, repairs need to be made and the structural system before repairing the plaster. Then, the plaster on each side of the crack should be removed to a width of about six inches down to the lath. The debris is cleaned out, the metal lath applied to the cleared area, leaving the existing wood lath in place. The metal lath usually prevents further cracking. The crack is patched with an appropriate plaster in three phases. Base coats and finish coats should be avoided. If a crack seems to be expanding, a structural engineer should be consulted. So if you, if you make the fix and it keeps going back and forth, a structural engineer should be consulted. Repl replacing delaminated areas of the finished coat. Sometimes the finished coat of plaster comes loose from the base coat. In making this coat or repair, 
the plaster paints a liquid plaster bonding agent onto the areas of base coat plaster that will be replastered with a new lime finish coat. A homeowner wishing to repair, repair small areas of delaminated finish coat can use the methods as uh, we will be describing in the patching area. So patching holes and walls. This is good for the homeowners we just said. For small holes less than four inches in diameter, that involves loss of the brown and finished coats. The repair is made in two applications. First, a layer of base coat plaster is troweled into place and scraped back below the level of the existing plaster. When the base coat has set but not dried, more plaster is applied to create a smooth, level surface. One coat patching is not generally recommended by plasters. Because it tends to produce concave surfaces that show up when the work is painted. Of course, if the lath only had one coat of plaster originally, then one coat patch is appropriate. It is appropriate fix. For larger holes, where all three coats of plaster are damaged or missing down to the wood lath, plasters generally proceed along these lines. First, all the old plaster is cleaned out and any loose lath is renailed. Next, a water mist is sprayed on the old lath to keep it from twisting when the new wet plaster is applied. Or better still, a bonding agent is used to provide more reliable keying and to strengthen the patch. Expanded metal lath called diamond mesh should be attached to the wood lath with tie wires or nailed over the wood lath with lath nails. The plaster is then nailed in three layers over the metal lath tapping each new layer of plaster over the old plaster so that the old and the new are joined evenly. This stepping is recommended to produce a strong, invisible patch. Also, if the patch is made in a plaster wall that is slightly wavy, the contour of the patch should be made to conform to the irregularities of the existing work. A flat patch will stand out from the rest of the wall. So. Patching holes in ceilings. This is, a, this is a much more challenging aspect, the most challenging aspect. So hairline cracks and holes may be, may be quite unsightly, but when portions of the ceiling come loose, a more serious problem could exist. The keys holding the plaster to the ceiling have probably broken. First, the plaster around the loosed, loose plaster should be examined. Keys may have deteriorated because of a localized moisture problem, poor quality plaster, or structural overloading. Yet, the surrounding system may be intact. If the areas surrounding the loose area are in reasonably good condition, the loose plaster can be reattached to the lath using flathead wood screws and plaster washers. To patch a hole in the ceiling that is made of plaster, Metal lath is fastened over the wood lath. Then a hole is filled with successive layers of plaster, as we have previously described. If the back of the ceiling lath is accessible, usually from the attic or after removing floorboards, small areas of bowed-out plaster can be pushed back against the lath. A padded piece of plywood and braces are used to secure the loose plaster. After dampening the old lath and coating the damaged area with a bonding agent, a fairly liquid plaster mix with a glue-sized retardant added 
is applied to the backs of the lath and worked into the voids between the faces of the lath and the back of the plaster. While the first layer is still damp, plaster-soaked strips of jute scrim are laid across the backs of the lath and pressed firmly into the first layer as a reinforcement. The original lath must be secure, otherwise the weight of the patching plaster may loosen it. Loose, damaged plaster can also be rekeyed when the goal is to conserve decorative surfaces or wallpaper. Large areas of ceilings and or walls can be saved. This method requires the assistance of a skilled conservator and is not a repair technique used by most plasters. The conservator injects an acrylic adhesive mixture through holes drilled in the face of the plaster or through the lath from behind when accessible. The loose plaster is held firm with plywood bracing until the adhesive bonding mixture sets. When complete, gaps between the plaster and lath are filled and the loose pl plaster is totally secure. Replastering over the old ceiling. If a historic ceiling is too cracked to patch or is sagging but not damaged from moisture, plasters routinely keep the old ceiling and simply relath the plaster over it. The repair technique can be used if lowering the ceiling slightly does not affect other ornamental features. The existing ceiling is covered with one by three inch furring strips, one to each joist, then fastening completely through the old lath and plaster using a screw gun. Expanded metal lath or gypsum board lath is nailed over the furring strips. Finally, two or three coats of applied according to traditional methods. Replastering over the old ceiling saves time, creates much less dust than demolition, and gives added fire protection. So when damaged plaster cannot be repaired, let's talk about replacement options. Partial complete removal may be necessary if plaster is badly damaged, particularly if the damage was caused by long-term moisture problems. Workers undertaking demolition should wear OSHA-approved masks because the plaster dust that flies into the air may contain decades old of coal soot, lead, from lead-based paints, is another danger. Long-sleeve clothing and head-to-eye protection should be worn. Asbestos, used in the mid-20th century as an insulating and fireproofing additive, may also have been present, and OSHA-recommended precautions should be taken. If plaster in adjacent rooms is still in good condition, walls should be, not be pounded. A small trowel to, or pry bar is worked behind the plaster carefully in order to pry loose pieces that would fall off the wall normally. So when the damaged plaster has been removed, the owner must decide whether to repair over the existing lath or use a different system. The decision should be based part on the thickness of the original plaster and the condition of the original lath. Economy and time are also valid considerations in this point. So it is quite important to ensure that the wood trim around the windows and doors will have the same reveal as before. If the, <clears throat> if the protection of the wood and trim system of the surface on the plastered wall, a lath and plaster system that will give this required depth should be selected. So let's talk about replastering an alternative lath system for new plaster. 
So replastering with old wood lath. When plasters work with old lath, each lath strip is renailed and the chunks of old plaster are cleaned out. Because the old lath is dry, it must be thoroughly soaked before applying the base coats of plaster, or it will warp and buckle. Furthermore, because of the water is drawn out, the plaster will fail to set properly. As noted earlier, if new metal lath is installed over old wood lath, and the base for the new plaster, <coughs> for the new plaster, many of these problems can be avoided, and the historic lath can be retained. The ceiling should still be sprayed unless the vapor barrier is placed behind the metal lath. Replastering over new metal lath. An alternative to reusing the old wood lath is to install a different lathing system. Galvanized metal lath is the most expensive, but also the most reliable in terms of longevity, stability, and proper keying. When lathing over open joints, the plaster should come or should come to cover over the, the joist with craft paper or a polyethylene vapor barrier. The three coats of wet, wet, <coughs> wet plaster are applied consecutively to form a solid monolithic unit with the lath. The scratch coat keys into the metal lath. The second or brown coat bonds to the scratch coat and builds a thickness. The third or finished coat consists of lime putty and gauging plaster. Replastering over new rock lath. It is also possible to use rock lath as a plaster base. Plasters may need to, to remove the existing wood lath to maintain the wood. Rock lath is a 16 by 36 inch, one half inch thick gypsum core panel covered with absorbent paper with gypsum crystals in the paper. The crystals in the paper bond to the wet plaster and anchor it securely. This type of lath requires two coats of new plaster the brown coat and the finished coat. The gypsum lath itself takes the place of the first or scratch coat of plaster. Let's talk about painting new plaster. The key to a successful paint job is proper dry, drying of the plaster. Historically, lime plasters were allowed to cure for at least a year before the walls were painted or papered. With modern ventilation, plaster cures in a shorter time. However, fresh gypsum plaster with a lime finished coat should still be perfectly dry before the paint is applied or the paint may peel immediately. Plasters traditionally use the match test on the new plaster. If a match would light by striking it on the new plaster surface, the plaster was considered dry. Today it is best to allow new plaster to cure for two to three weeks. A good alkin resistant primer specifically formulated for new plaster, should then be used. A compatible latex or oil-based paint can be used for the final coat. A modern replacement system for plaster, veneer plaster. Using one of the traditional lath and plaster systems provides the highest quality plaster job. However, in some cases, budget and time considerations may lead the owner to consider a less expensive replacement alternative. Designed to reduce the cost of materials, a more decent lath and plaster system is less expensive than a two or three coat plaster job, but only slightly more expensive than drywall. This plaster system is called veneer plaster. The system uses gypsum 
core panels that are the same size as drywall, four by eight feet, and specially made for veneer plaster. They can be installed over furring channels to masonry walls or over old wood lath walls and ceilings, known most commonly as blueboard. The panels are covered with special paper compatible with the veneer plaster. Joints between the two four-foot wide sheets are taped with fiberglass mesh, which is bedded in the veneer plaster. After the tape is bedded, a thin 1 16th of an inch coat of high-strength veneer plaster is applied to the entire wall surface. A second veneer layer can be used as the finished coat of the veneer plaster, and this can be covered with gauge lime plaster coat, the same coat that covers ordinary plaster. Although extremely thin, this two-coat veneer plaster system has a 1,500-pound PSI rating and is thus able to withstand structural movements in a building or surface abrasion. With either veneer finished or a gauge lime putty finish coat, the room will be ready for painting almost immediately. When complete, entrailed or textured wall surface looks more like traditional plaster than drywall ever could. The thin profile of the veneer system has an added benefit, especially for owners of uninsulated masonry buildings. Insulation can be installed between the pieces of furring channel used to attach blue board to masonry walls. This can be done without having to fur out the windows and the door jams. The insulation plus the veneer system will result in the same thickness of the original plaster. Occupants in the rooms will be more comfortable because they will be not losing heat to cold walled surfaces. Okay, so we're going to finish up here. Um, final summary about plastering. So the uh, National Park Service recommends retaining historic plaster if at all possible. Plaster is a significant part of the fabric of any building. Much of the building's history is documented in the layers of paint and paper found covering old plaster. For buildings with decorative painting, conservation of historic flat plaster is even more important. Consultation with the National Park Service or with other state historic preservation officers, local preservation organizations, or historic preservationist consultants, or with the Association for Preservation Technology is highly recommended. Whether plaster can, cannot be used where plaster cannot be repaired or conserved using one of the approaches I just outlined. Documentation of, of the layers of wallpaper and paint should be undertaken before removing the historic plaster. This information may be needed to complete a restoration plan. Thanks for listening. This is Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation, signing out. Um, thanks for listening to Plaster.